It's called a Vermont Romance. The title itself sounds, you know, very romantic, but it's really not a romance film. It's almost a political film. One of the earliest films made in Vermont was produced by the Vermont Advance, the newspaper of the Progressive Party. They wanted to promote the modernization of the state. The half-hour black-and-white movie was shot in just 10 days in the summer of 1916. Vermonters were chosen in a statewide contest to be the actors. It shows. It's not too zippy, but it does have, for that time, of course, romances. And there's car chases. You must have car chases. Fred Pond has volunteered at the Vermont Historical Society for over a decade, helping to locate and preserve old films including a Vermont romance. A woman leaves the country and moves to the city. Meanwhile, there's a tour to the uh, bread factory in White River Junction. The tip-top building is still there, but it's no longer a bakery. It's an arts and creative business center. Other locations shown in the film have also changed or disappeared entirely. The Vermont Advance toured the film all over the state in the fall of 1916. People came out in droves. It was probably the first film that many Vermonters ever saw. And it was just the first example of how Vermont has been depicted on the silver screen. You know, a local film has been made, let's go see it. You know, this is our streets, you know, look at this, this is a film. This is Before Your Time, presented by the Vermont Historical Society and Vermont Humanities. I'm your host, Lovejoy. Every episode, we go inside the stacks at the Vermont Historical Society to look at an object from their permanent collection that tells us something unique about our state. Then we take a closer look at the people, the events, or the ideas that surround each artifact. Because of the pandemic, we're not actually going into the stacks today. And movies really live in our memories and in the stories we tell about ourselves. The physical nature of movies has changed since the time Fred Pond went to school. I worked in the audiovisual club at my high school. She wanted this film at that period in room 506, and we would uh, take the film out of storage and thread it on a projector and roll it on a cart, clatter, clatter, down the halls to room 506. Before video was a thing, Fred learned to splice and love films. Years later, Vermont Historical Society librarians Paul Carnahan and Marjorie Strong found a project for Fred that took advantage of his knowledge. They let me come in and look at the vault and they showed me this wall of old films, a whole big bookcase, and I, I said to Paul and Marjorie, what's in them? And they said, well, we have a few lists, but we're not really sure. One of those films turned out to be a Vermont romance. It had been shot on wide 35mm film stock, but the original was lost to time. By 2008, only a 16mm copy and a grainier 8mm copy survived. The Historical Society worked with the Vermont International Film Foundation and its Vermont Archive Movie Project to restore a Vermont romance. And that 8mm copy came in handy. With these old films, certainly the headers and the tails would get chewed up. You, you wouldn't have the titling. The 8mm that we'd found had the titling. So we used the 8mm to inform 
the retitling in the digitized copy we did in 2016. Since it is a silent film, the Vermont International Film Foundation commissioned a score by Bob Merrill, a composer and musician who regularly accompanies silent films at Dartmouth College. 100 years after its initial tour, the restored Vermont romance went on the road, and again, it was a big hit across the state. Not every film in the archives can get the same star treatment as a Vermont romance. Fred is also interested in home movies, what he calls community films. We sometimes get them when estates are settled, but I live in concern that people will see that that old film canister and recycle it. Old films shot in our state give us an invaluable look at how life was lived in Vermont years ago. Our hills and buildings, our clothing and mannerisms. Vermont has never been a real rich state. We didn't have a lot of people filming in the early days. So what we do have is perhaps more deer. This lack of footage from Vermont's early days is surprising since Vermont has now been portrayed in film so often. Grab a bag of popcorn and settle in as we head down memory lane. My name is Amanda Gustin and I'm the public program manager at the Vermont Historical Society. And you've heard me before in other things in this podcast. Today we're gonna talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, film history. I really particularly love classic Hollywood movies anything made before about 1945. A few years ago, I started keeping a list of movies that mentioned or took place in Vermont. It started just as a fun thing to do, but it also started getting longer and longer. And before I knew it, I'd started to see patterns. And when I thought about those patterns, they seemed to say something about the way Vermont has been depicted in Hollywood movies over the last hundred years. Take the 1930s and 40s, for example. There are a ton of movies from that era that show Vermont as this perfect, idyllic place. It's the last refuge of democracy. Kids are excited to go to Sunday school. It's an inherently more moral place than somewhere like, say, New York City. The pace of life is just slower and happier. Here's an example. The 1939 movie Dark Victory, in which Betty Davis plays a New York socialite and George Brent plays her doctor. He's telling her why he's leaving New York, and she tells him why she thinks that is a terrible decision. I'm clearing out of my racket. I'm leaving for Vermont in about uh, 15 minutes. Vermont? You don't mean that narrow, pinched-up little state on the wrong side of Boston? That's the one. No kidding? No kidding. What are you going to do there between yawns? Ah, uh, you wouldn't be interested. Oh, come now, Doctor, after leading me on like this. Well, I'm going to do scientific research on the growth of cells. In little guinea pigs? No, just cells. Sounds silly. I'm told. Still, I almost envy you. Must be nice to believe in what you're doing. Before 1952, there are a couple of other tropes you see in movies set in Vermont. Winter is bad, and the state is full of Republicans. Time and again, people in movies set in Vermont are getting into serious trouble with the weather. In 1940s Young People, for example, Shirley Temple plays a girl whose parents move to Vermont so they can raise her properly. And her family is accepted by the community only after she saved her entire Sunday school class from a blizzard. Then there's the politics. We've got to stay up here and dream up some way of getting people to come into this place. Well, what, what do you suggest? I don't know. 
should be something unusual, some kind of a novelty that... Uh... Well, tell me, Brainstorm, what do you think would be a novelty up here in Vermont? Who knows? Maybe we can dig up a Democrat. Oh, they'd stone him. <laughs> From 1860 to 1960, Vermont was one of the most reliably Republican states in the country. There are a lot of reasons for that, and a lot of reasons why it changed. But it was well known and obvious enough, even to Hollywood scriptwriters, that there are tons of little jokes just like that one from 1954's White Christmas. Speaking of White Christmas, if there's one movie you probably think of when you think about movies set in Vermont, it's that one. It's a classic. And do you remember the plot? White Christmas is the first time a movie set in Vermont is lamenting about a lack of snow instead of worried about too much of it. Snow, 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 snow. snow. It won't be long before we'll all be there with snow. Snow, snow. I want to wash my hands, my face and hair with snow. By the 1960s, the centralized image of Vermont in film was starting to fracture. So you see movies like the 1965 movie Those Callaways that are set in Vermont, and they deal with issues like economic development, environmental preservation, and the essential nature of a community. We got to remodel the hotel, we got to pave the main street, and we got to give her another label. Now I figured the old Indian name would do. Now that's name got some punch. That means wild goose stop. Right. The only thing is the geeks don't stop here every year. They don't, huh? Passed us clean by in 23. Hmm. That could be a problem, huh? To you, but to the geese, it really don't make no difference one way or the other. In the 1980s, Vermont again became a place where people would go to escape and live the good life, usually leaving New York City to do so. Here, for example, is Diane Keaton in the movie Baby Boom, reflecting on just what life will be like when she settles into her new farmhouse in Vermont. Honey, it's so exciting. We actually own a house with fruit orchards, a pond, and a barn. Oh, Elizabeth, it's going to be a whole new life for us. Yep, I'm going to learn to relax and sleep late, bake apple pies, get into quilts. I can't wait. We're going to be just like the farmer in the dell. One thing has remained constant through all the movies and all the TV shows set in Vermont, and that is the trope that Vermonters give bad directions. Here's a great example from the 1988 Chevy Chase film Funny Farm. To give you some context, uh, these are two moving van drivers looking for Chevy Chase's new house, and then the man they talk to is an old Vermont farmer who's just sitting on his porch. Could you give us some assistance, please? Yeah, glad to help. We're looking for a Dog Creek Road. Uh, that would be near the town of Redbud. Well, if I was going to Dog Creek Road, I sure as hell wouldn't start from here. Supposing you had to. Well, then I'd swing around and go back the way you came. But this time, turn right at where the old Holland Shed barn used to be. Then about five miles before the road dead ends, veer left and follow the railroad track straight into a town called Beaver Mills. Or you could take the bridge at the fork in the road and say... Into the 90s and 2000s, Hollywood added a few more things to its image of Vermont. Food and liberal politics. 
Both of these things are summed up nicely in this scene from the 2005 movie, Thank You for Smoking, in which Aaron Eckhart plays a lobbyist for Big Tobacco, who quizzes William H. Macy's senator from Vermont during a congressional hearing. Don't even compare. Oh, this from a senator who calls Vermont home. I don't follow you, Mr. Naylor. Well, the real demonstrated number one killer in America is cholesterol. And here comes Senator Finister, whose fine state is, I regret to say, clogging the nation's arteries with Vermont cheddar cheese. <laughs> if we want to talk numbers, how about the millions of people dying of heart attacks? Perhaps Vermont cheddar should come with a skull and crossbones. That is loot. The great state of Vermont will not apologize for its cheese. So what do we learn from watching and thinking about all these movies and TV shows set in Vermont? Well, for one thing, they all represent a certain idealized angle on the state. Even during the height of the Great Depression in the 1930s, life in Hollywood, Vermont was rosy and charmed. A lot of it is tied up again with these same questions of outsider versus insider that keep coming up again and again in Vermont history. Whether or not you agree with the Vermont that you see on a movie or TV screen, it's how a lot of people are introduced to the state. And I don't think people in movies and TV shows are going to stop coming to Vermont anytime soon. So I'll keep adding to my list. This is camera roll three, sound roll three. Kenneth uh, O'Donnell, Chelsea. So she'll be in milk in two years. Yeah, if you have good luck. A barn in Chelsea can feel a long way from the idealized Vermont of Hollywood. She, she's, had, she's had three cows and she's only five now. This farmer, Kenneth O'Donnell, was captured on film in the early 1970s. Not so calf last year in the first one she lost. Come, his head was twisted. Richard came to Vermont during the Back to the Land movement with, a, with other filmmakers, actually, from New York. He bought the potato field of Kenneth and his brother Arthur and uh, built a house there right on top of the hill with quite a view. Suzanne Opton is a photographer. She was the partner of filmmaker Richard Brick. Kenneth and Helen O'Donnell were our neighbors. And Richard decided to make this film, Last Stand Farmer, and I helped with the film and then photographed a lot of local people. Vermont Humanities was founded in 1974. It gave one of its first grants to Richard Brick to aid in the making of his 25-minute documentary. Richard was in his late 20s when he made Last Stand Farmer. He eventually became a film professor at Columbia University and was the first ever commissioner of New York City's Office of Film, Television, and Broadcasting. He worked on a variety of movies and died in 2014. No fellow over the he filled his tank, but one, one hold up all five barrels and began to run down through the bottom, you know. You know, one of the things for the Folklife Center when encountering documentary films is like, was this done in a way that it would ethically make sense to us? Andy Kolovos is the associate director and archivist at the Vermont Folklife Center. The audio from the making of Last Stand Farmer is archived with the center and can be heard on their website. Is it more about the subject and how the subject sees the world or more how the filmmaker wants to see the subject and present the subject? And I think Richard did a phenomenal job. Joyce, I wouldn't have any luck getting the cornmeal down where the holes was. Suzanne Opton started her career as a reporter in California 
before moving to Vermont. But I always wanted to be a photographer, and I came to Chelsea and thought, this is perfect. I found eight families that were interesting to me, and I photographed them all the time. That's mostly what I did. Her subjects included their neighbors, Kenneth and Helen O'Donnell. And I don't think I intended to stay, except that it was fascinating to me. And these people whose lives were four generations in the same place, they slept in the same bed all their lives. Um, That was so interesting to me because it was so opposite my experience. Suzanne's parents had fled the Holocaust in Germany, settled in New York, then moved to Oregon. She came east for college, went back to the West Coast, and returned east again after she met Richard Brick. I remember the first time Kenneth came to Richard's house to visit, you know, in his potato field, and Richard was upstairs. I said, Richard, Kenneth is coming, you know, what's going to happen? What's he going to think? about this sort of modern house in his potato field. And he was the most generous man imaginable. Just so sweet and very fond of Richard. They had a, they had a really nice relationship. Boy, that's good luck. That was good luck. When we walked away from it that afternoon I helped you, I was wondering whether it would all be there the next day. Yeah. Because yeah. it just sits there and it weighs so much. Yeah, we filled it. Uh about three times this year so far. My impression, having talked to Richard, provided my memory is right, is that, you know, he used to hang out with Kenneth. You know, he would just go over there and, and, you know, basically let Kenneth talk. A number of the reels are just that, right? They're just running the tape recorder while Kenneth's talking. They don't know what hard times are. They were born right in this high price stuff. And the state or somebody made them a good job and they're sitting all right. But when they, what's he going to be when they ain't no more state jobs? The, way had- the things that Kenneth talked about in the early 70s, taxes, the difficulty of farming, people in rural Vermont still talk about nearly 50 years later. Such laments are as common as the old movie joke about Vermonters giving confusing directions, but not as funny. Taxes always seem to be too high, but they ain't out of proportion, same as they are now. If you paid Some of the people I photographed, they couldn't pay their taxes, so they sold the land as a lifelong lease. And when they died, whoever had bought it got it then. And the Boyd sisters, for instance, I went to see their house in the 90s sometimes, you know, and their house fell into the ground. You know, we try to maintain our homes, but they couldn't do that. So it just fell into the ground. The short film captures a state in the middle of a transformation, and not just because of the recent arrival of the Back to the Landers. After decades of cultural stability in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Vermont began to change rapidly after World War II. Skiing, the interstates, and the consolidation of dairy farms. Inherent in the title, Last Stand Farmer, is this romantic notion of loss, like big R romantic, right? That here's this way of life, and and I, I can watch it perishing in front of me. And that, I think, is one of the enduring stories we tell ourselves about change in Vermont that uh, things were always one way 
and then new people show up and suddenly they can see how it's going away. Hollywood isn't the only place where myths can be created. But calling something a myth doesn't mean that it's a lie. Myths often hold truths. But I think a lot of the, the big R romantic vision of, of Vermont and rural America is it's a timeless place, you know, and, and the world changed around these people and they didn't know what to do. And, uh, you know, and I don't like that's not something I buy. Um, that's an outsider's perspective, I would say. And I'm saying that as an outsider, you know, I'm not from here. What's unique about Last Stand Farmer when compared to Hollywood films about Vermont is Richard's relationship with Kenneth. Richard may have been an outsider, but he was a neighbor, and Kenneth trusted him. If we could just set it right back to them days, get it down where people could live. Everything's too fast now. Doesn't look like it's going to turn back, though. No, it would be pretty hard to turn it all back. Of course, there's a lot of things you wouldn't want to turn back. The same as lights and refrigeration and that, you wouldn't want to turn that back. On the one hand, we have this, this narrative of romance and loss and transition. And on the other hand, we have perhaps maybe one of the fundamental narratives about life in Vermont. People can't afford to be here. There's not enough opportunity. Uh, you know, increasingly we're competing with outsiders for employment and space. You know, um, all that other stuff, just these sort of perennial, perennial things that are part of, that have been part of life here for a long time. This narrative seems truer than the fake snow and white Christmas, but sometimes we can look again at the stories we tell about ourselves. You know what? Like the only human constant is change. And while I might not like uh, the way in which things are changing, um, this is what we as a species do. So um, I try not to take this, this position of, gosh, it's so tragic this is going away. And then uh, being sort of uh, mournful um, or romantically uh, engaged with that topic for those reasons, except to say things change and um, not all change is good and not all change is bad, but life is about things becoming different than they were. We used to hang a beef in the shed long in November. My beef wouldn't thaw out till spring. Go out there and chip your beef off if you want it. Before be solid. With an axe? Yep. Axe, knife, knife and hammer or something like that. You couldn't do that today. Because one week it's down cold, next week it's up above freezing. Before Your Time is presented by Vermont Humanities and the Vermont Historical Society. This episode was produced by Amanda Gustin and Ryan Newswanger with help from Hannah Kirkpatrick. Thanks to our guests, Fred Pond, Suzanne Opton, and Andy Kolobos. Thanks to the Vermont Archive Movie Project, a program of the Vermont International Film Festival, and to Bob Merrill for the use of the music that Bob composed for A Vermont Romance. Thanks as well to the Vermont Folklife Center for the use of the Last Stand Farmer audio clips and to Noah Brick for sending us a DVD of the film. Visit our website, beforeyourtime.org, to find photos, videos, and artifacts related to this episode. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends about the podcast. 
Thanks for listening.